Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through to 7, verse 12, is the central section of the Sermon on the Mount. 517 through 712 is the central section to the sermon. Within that central section, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, is its center. Within 6, 1 through 21, At the very center of that section sits the so-called Lord's Prayer. It is the center of the center of the center of the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, when you observe that a text sits structurally at the center of a bigger unit that does not necessarily mean that it sits theologically at the center of that unit. When you observe that a text is structurally central, that doesn't necessarily mean it is theologically the most important point. However, in this case, I believe it does. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' sermon teaching us what it means to be a disciple. It teaches us what it means to flourish. And those two statements are not at odds. They are not different statements. In the sermon, Jesus teaches what it means to follow him. In this sermon, he teaches what it means to flourish in this earthly life. It is one and the same thought. How are you to be a disciple of Christ? How are you to flourish? We've seen through the Beatitudes, we are to live Christ-centered, kingdom-oriented lives. And we've seen our responsibility to pursue righteousness. Through the second half of chapter 5, by God's grace, we are to pursue each and every day a greater righteousness. That is what it means to be a disciple of Christ and in turn, therefore, to flourish. And then, in chapter 6, Jesus gives a note on how to pray. It sits at the very heart of the entire sermon, which suggests it is more than even a note on how to pray. As we examine these priorities in prayer this morning, what we will come to see is Jesus is instructing us about how we should pray, certainly how we should think, even how we ought to live. These are priorities by which we should seek to live. And central to Jesus' teaching here on prayer is the understanding that we are children of God. Central to the entire Lord's Prayer is the understanding that we come to God not as one who is far off, not as one who we are uncertain whether He has an ear for us, whether He will be favorably disposed towards us, but we approach Him as a loving, heavenly Father. And that 
changes everything. Now, the prayer can be divided into two halves, verse 9 and 10, and then a second half in 11 through 13. But notice, each half also has an accompanying comment. Jesus leads into his instruction in, on prayer in verses 7 and 8 with an explanatory comment. And then in conclusion, at verse 13, he gives another explanatory comment. So this morning, just the first half of the prayer, working through the various teachings that Jesus gives here, the introductory comment, verses 7 and 8, followed by the priorities that he gives in verses 9 and 10. The explanatory comment is so simple. When you pray, verse 7, don't heap up empty phrases. Don't heap up many words. Don't come to God with lots and lots and lots of phrases as a way of asking for things. It's important to understand Jesus here is not prohibiting necessarily lengthy prayers. I was asked just the other week by a friend, do you plan your prayer in the service? I said, which prayer are you referring to? He said, the long one, (laughs) meaning the pastoral prayer after our scripture reading. It's not wrong to pray long prayers. And in fact, in scripture, we see Jesus prayed all night prior to his crucifixion. The point in verse 7 is not so much to tell us not to pray long prayers, but not to pray as the Gentiles do. Notice the change in terminology from the previous paragraph where he said, don't be like the hypocrites. Here, it is not the hypocrites, but the Gentiles who function as a negative example. Don't pray like the Gentiles do. And culturally, the disciples would have understood the way in which the Gentiles pray is to come to their God, petitioning Him with many words, many words, over and over and over again as a means of securing the deity's favor. The way in which the Gentiles pray is to labor for hours so as to get the ear of their God. We have a very clear scriptural example of this. Perhaps your minds have already gone there. First Kings chapter 18. You don't need to turn there now. You most likely know the narrative. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And there's this, this competition, as it were, between the two. Who has the real God? Elijah says, you call on your God and I'll call on my God and here's an altar and we'll see which God responds in consuming the offering. And the prophets of Baal go first. And the text tells us they raved for hours. They worked themselves into a frenzy. They petitioned Baal for hours. Until the time of the evening offering, they just kept petitioning him. We're even told they cut themselves with swords. 
They are trying to show that they are worthy of being heard. It is a works-based religion. And there is utter silence. And then Elijah responds with such a simple prayer. And the God of grace consumes the offering. Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. Don't pray like the Gentiles. Why? Because you have a Father in heaven. He says your Father in heaven already knows what you need before you ask Him. And the point is not so much that God knows intimately your requests, but first and foremost, God knows you. You see, the difference between Jesus' disciples and the Gentiles in their prayer is not that each knows his respective God. The difference is not that you know God and the Gentiles don't know their God. The prophets of Baal knew their God by name. They called out to their God by name. The difference is that our God knows us. He knows us intimately. He knows us as a loving, heavenly Father. This is very much the emphasis of this section within the Sermon on the Mount. As I mentioned before, 17 times throughout the sermon, Jesus refers to God as Father. 10 of those 17 times are within this one unit. We are being guided through a theology of prayer according to its foundation, namely that we are children of God. And so Jesus introduces his teaching on prayer by way of the doctrine of our adoption. And it is difficult to overstate the importance of this truth. I was reminded this week of how I first came to learn of the doctrine of my adoption in Christ. As I think of it, it was curious. I came to be a Christian without the knowledge of adoption. As folks had explained the gospel to me countless times, they had labored the doctrine of justification. And I'm so grateful they did. I understood very plainly that by confessing Jesus as Lord, by seeing him on the cross as a sufficient Savior, who's paid a debt that I could never pay, I understood by by that confession my sins have now been paid for. What is more, I have been credited with Christ's righteousness. That is the doctrine of justification that had been laid out plainly to me. And as God gave me eyes of faith to look on Christ in that way, and I entered into the Christian faith, I understood very plainly that my sins had now been dealt with. I don't think anyone had ever explained to me that at the same time I became a child of God. And it was some months later that I was baptized It was March 2005. It was an evening service. The church I was worshipping in at the time was a huge Church of England building. They didn't have a baptistry inbuilt to the church, the same that we don't have here. And so for the baptism service, they 
wheeled out a large portable baptistry. They filled it up on the Friday and somebody put a heating element into it to start to warm that water. And you have to understand, March in the UK is still a bitterly cold time of year. And it was Sunday afternoon that someone put their hand in the water and discovered that the heating element was broken. So this freezing cold pool of water and then began the the effort in the few hours left before the service to boil one kettle after another and, and pour it into this volume of water in the vain hope that the temperature might be raised by a degree or, or two. And of course, it was futile. I was baptized in freezing cold water. And that evening, a friend of mine, who had been very much a mentor to me, gave me a book. And I pulled it off the shelf this week. I didn't know of the book at the time. It was a new title to me. It was J.I. Packer's Knowing God. If you haven't read the book, you need to. And the note in the front said, it's heavy reading. I recommend a chapter at a time. And so over the next few months, I would read a chapter of this wonderful book and meditate upon it for a week or so before endeavoring to read the next chapter. And I remember reading chapter 19. It was one of the most formative nights of my life. Because in chapter 19, I learned for the first time that now I'm a child of God. I learned for the first time that my faith in Christ had not merely acquitted me of my sin, but gained for me a Father in heaven. I learned what Packer explains in that chapter that adoption is the highest blessing in the Christian life. Now, I want to be very clear in saying that justification is the foundational blessing of the Christian life. We must never get beyond it. We must never tire of it. We have our access to God the Father through the doctrine of justification. It is the foundational blessing of the Christian life, but justification is a blessing that belongs in the courtroom. It is a forensic blessing, which is to say, if I went into a courtroom today accused of certain charges, if the judge were to acquit me of those charges, I would leave thankful, happy, but there is nothing to say I would have an ongoing relationship with that judge. In fact, most likely, I would never see him again. Justification is a wonderful blessing. It is the foundational blessing of the Christian life. But adoption is the highest blessing. Because adoption is a relational blessing. Adoption says you went into the courtroom, the heavenly courtroom. The holy God acquitted you of all charges. And as you were ready to leave, he said, don't go because you're coming home with me. You will now be my child. It is difficult to overstate the importance of the doctrine of adoption. And Packer notes how much of the New Testament theology is framed within that doctrine. 
He says the whole New Testament could be summed up as adoption through propitiation. That is the message of the apostles, adoption through propitiation. It ought to be our controlling thought, our most frequent meditation, I am a child of God. And yet so often that's not how we think of our Christianity. It's not how we think of our Heavenly Father. Often we behave like the Gentiles do. You see this particularly in a Christian's prayer life. You come to God with a sin that must be confessed. And it's right that we confess our sins regularly. They have been paid for once and for all at the cross, but there is a relational disconnect as we pursue sin. And so it's right that we keep confessing those sins to restore relationally our position before God the Father. And what you see so often is that the Christian will confess a sin before our Father in heaven and then confess it again. And then he or she will come back and profess it again. And they will keep confessing the same sin failing to heed the theology of the gospel, not least the theology of adoption, which says it has been dealt with. If you have genuinely confessed that sin with regret and remorse and a spirit of repentance before your loving heavenly Father, it is dealt with. You do not need to bring it back before Him. But when the Christian keeps bringing the same sin to God in prayer, it demonstrates a lack of awareness that we are children of God. It is to behave like the Gentiles do, heaping up empty phrases before their God. Consider the reality of your sonship. Consider the beauty of this doctrine, especially as it would have come to the original readers of the New Testament. You see, in Jesus' day, in the apostles' day, the reality of adoption in society is not what it is this day. This day, we so often see a family adopt a child who is perhaps an orphan, or from a broken home who is desperately in need of a loving, nurturing home, I praise God for adoption as it is practiced today. In Jesus' day, that was not the understanding of adoption. Adoption would have been pursued by a well-to-do family who had no heir. In Jesus' day and in Paul's day, Those who adopted were those that were affluent and had the means to adopt. But perhaps the father did not have a son. And so his desire was to carry on, perpetuate the family name. He needed an heir. So what does he do? He goes out and he finds not an infant, but a young man. A young man who had already proven himself. A young man whose health was strong. A young man who had demonstrated his ability in various areas. He's a fine specimen of a man, therefore I'll adopt him so as to be my heir. 
And then the New Testament writers issue forth a fundamentally different understanding of adoption. A holy God looked upon you and you had no thing to offer him. You were a a rebel. You were not seeking his love. You were not seeking to honor him. And in his grace, he sought you. And he paid not some great sum of money. He sent his only son. He had a son who was perfect. He had no need to adopt. And yet he sacrificed his son in order that he would gain many sons. That is the glory of our adoption. And as God has brought us into his family, he will never, ever fail us. He will never fail us knowing all of our sins. He does not once turn his back on us. But he only ever operates towards us in love for our good. This is the truth of our adoption. It might be that you're here this morning not as a child of God. You are where I was in my early 20s, hovering around the peripheries of the Christian faith. You like being at church and you like being with God's people, but never having put your faith in Christ, not a son of God. My question for you this morning is, why would you not run towards these realities? When you see the highest blessing of the Christian life, why would you not race towards that truth? Putting your faith in Christ and submitting to Him wholeheartedly, turning from all that dishonors God in order that He would pronounce you to be His son, His daughter. You're a Christian. You need to pray that adoption would be your controlling thought. Pray with me that sonship would be the controlling thought of your Christian life. That it would reign over your every other thought. Your adoption, your reality as a child of God changes everything including how you pray. With this explanatory comment, Jesus then teaches his disciples how to pray. Through the lens of adoption, coming to our Father who knows us and who knows what we need before we ask him, this then is how we ought to pray. And Jesus gives us three principles. Again, not merely principles of how we pray, but how we think, how we live our lives. All of them are to be informed by our understanding of God as our Father. The first principle is that God's name would be hallowed. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is somewhat synonymous with holy, sanctified, set apart, revered. 
Holy be your name. The concept of the name throughout the Bible has an understanding of the person's whole being. When you pray your prayers and you finish in Jesus' name, what you are essentially saying there is, God, I am offering you this prayer through the person of Christ. In Jesus' name, I offer you my request only based on the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus in Jesus' name. So the concept of naming invokes the whole being and thus the principle that Jesus gives by which we should pray and think and live is that God would be revered, that he would be holy and set apart. And of course, to be clear, the point is not that we're asking God to become these things. God is holy. God is set apart altogether other. The request is that we would treat him as such. The prayer is that we would live our lives in light of the reality of God's holiness. Or as one commentator put it, the request is that we would live as true disciples. You see how there is an overlap with the text just preceding this, that concern motive. All that you would do should not be seeking the praise of men, but should be to please your Father who is in heaven. You have a proper estimation of who He is. Jesus is our example in this respect. In chapter 12 of John's Gospel, He prays a very similar prayer. God, glorify your name. Magnify your character through me in what is about to happen, not least my death on the cross. For us, we can look at the previous section, read everything in context. Beginning in 517, moving forward, Jesus teaches us the foundation of the Christian ethic and the Lord's Prayer informs that we should be doing all of these things based on a proper estimation of God's character. I won't give in to anger. I refuse to be an angry person and act out of this self-righteous, self-vindicating pride because I understand that God is holy. I want for God to be sanctified not only in my heart, but in other people's estimation of Him. As people look at me and see a refusal to give in to anger, they understand something about the holiness, the altogether otherness of God. I refuse to lust. I'm not going to give in to thoughts that dishonor God. Why? Because He is holy and I want to live in acknowledgement of that. I want for Him to be set apart in my own heart and in the lives of others as they witness my behavior. Again, Jesus is our example. As he prays that prayer in John's gospel, glorify your name, it's instructive to note how he begins the petition, Father. Father, glorify your name. I don't know what it is you pray for. Possibly there are some here today professing 
to be disciples, and yet truly having no prayer life of which they could speak. Your prayer life might easily be summed up as giving thanks before a meal. And at that, only when there are other people present. And that's not okay. If you're a disciple, that's not okay. There should be a cultivation of prayer in your life. And Jesus teaches one of your priorities in praying should be seeking after a hallowing of God's name in your life. One of the first things you write down for which you will petition your loving Heavenly Father is that He would be holy in your estimation of Him. So where does that desire come from? You see, pay attention, I'm not asking the question of how we do render God holy in our lives. I'm not asking how is it we can live so that God genuinely is set apart, sanctified, revered in all that we do. That is answered, at least in part, by chapter 5. The question that comes to us here is how may I have the desire to set him apart in all that I do? How may I even have in my heart a burdening desire to petition God above all other things that He would indeed be rendered as holy in my daily walk? And the answer is you consider Him as your Father. You think again upon the reality that He has made you a child of God. It is to be our controlling thought. It is the truth with which Jesus leads his instruction on prayer. And as you come to understand and embrace and live by the reality that you are a child of God, under the reign of a sovereign, loving, heavenly Father, you will only ever want to honor him. Think about the testimony of a friend of mine Many years my senior, he shared with me some time ago his testimony, not just of salvation, how he came to know the Lord, but of his earthly life, how he has walked a path that has consistently honored the Lord. And he told me this with no hint of pride in his voice. He was just so thankful that for his life, God had kept him back from any egregious sins, kept him back from sins that would have devastating consequences in his own life and in the lives of others. He grew up in a Christian home very early, put his faith in Christ, and the Lord had kept him walking a path of uprightness. And I'll always remember, he said so many times, As a young man, so many times I was confronted with the temptation to sin. And so often the thing that kept me from sinning was a desire to honor my earthly father. He said, I grew up in a home where I knew my parents loved me. I had an especially good relationship with my dad and I wanted so much to honor him. And that thought kept me from sinning. 
How much more for the Christian who takes in persistently the wonderful truth that we have a loving heavenly Father who is for us, who is more invested in our flourishing than we are? How much more would we be kept from sinning and living in a way that reveres God and sanctifies Him in every area of our life in so much as we understand that we are children of a Father who sees in secret? That's the first priority that Jesus gives, hallowed be your name. The second priority, your kingdom come. There are many that read this petition as something of an evangelistic prayer request. The idea being, your kingdom come, God, expand the boundaries of your kingdom today, bring sinners unto salvation I want to be clear, I think that is a good biblical prayer to pray. I desire so much that this church would be an outward-looking church, an evangelistic church that is constantly spending itself, our time and our resources, our energy to make Christ known in the community. It's a good prayer to pray. It is not the sentiment, the meaning behind the petition, your kingdom come. We should pray evangelistic prayers, pray continually for the salvation of the lost. But here, the context is not one of evangelism, as it will be elsewhere in Matthew's gospel. And we've already seen within the Sermon on the Mount how kingdom is a future-oriented reality. You go back to the Beatitudes, you see Jesus talking about Christ's kingdom, his coming kingdom. It is a future reality. Additionally, it seems here in particular that Jesus is drawing from a well-established prayer in Jewish culture that made the same petition, your kingdom come, and did so very evidently as a desire that future realities would come to pass. So the Jews would pray this prayer called the Kaddish. They would pray it frequently, and part of that prayer were the words, your kingdom come, and as they expanded upon it, it was evidently a prayer that future realities would come to pass in the present day. Jesus picks up on that well-known prayer and renders it a Christian desire. We have to take seriously that in the early centuries of the Christian church, one of the most consistent prayers was simply Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Constantly on their lips. And Jesus is teaching his disciples here one of your utmost priorities in your prayer life, in your thought life, in your life, should be the desire of the establishment of his future kingdom. Now that's a difficult prayer to pray. It's difficult in part because we are so preoccupied with the here and now. We are so preoccupied with that which is immediately before us 
We're so capricious in our thoughts. We don't think often about where we have come from or where we're headed. We live for the moment, and yet the Bible teaches us as disciples of Jesus, one of our priorities ought to be to look forward and say, God, I so want for that kingdom to come to pass now. It is also a difficult prayer to pray because we struggle to believe that that which is coming could possibly be better than that which we have now. I think this is a, especially difficult for a people who have not known persecution. Christians who have known the persecution that the Bible speaks of so often don't struggle to petition the Lord for his kingdom to come. We've been lulled into a sense of false security. We enjoy so much our comfortable lives that we don't wrestle with just how good the kingdom will be. Reminds me of a situation some years ago. We had not been in the country for very long. A family from back home were coming out on vacation and they were in touch and said, we'd love to meet with you. We were a poor, desperately poor seminary family and we said, we'll meet with you in this park nearby and we'll bring PB&J sandwiches. This very generous family said, no, we want to treat you to a day at Disneyland. So we were amazed and we were excited and the arrangement was that we would meet this family in the stores outside in, in downtown Disney. And from there, we would go into the park. And we said, we'll meet you at the Lego store. And that was our first mistake. <laughs> our children were very young. They knew absolutely nothing of Disney. And so one of my sons at the time, we went into the Lego store, and his eyes were bigger than saucers. Never, ever seen so much Lego in all of his life. And so we dive in, and you can start building things, and he just doesn't know where to begin. And, and sure enough, a few minutes later, the family arrive. And so I say, son, it's time to go to Disneyland. And he doesn't want to go. And I said, son, we're going to Disneyland today. <laughs> Let's go. And he didn't want to go. And through no fault of his own, he had not wrestled with how good his day was about to become. And we have no excuse. God has shown us the glorious hope that is set forth as children of God. And you see how often in the New Testament, the glory that is to be revealed is given to us through the framework of our adoption. See what love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. But when we see him, we shall become like him. That is a text that teaches us of our future glory, beginning with the truth that we are sons of God. 
or earlier this morning, the creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. That is a verse that you can live your life by. The creation is groaning for the consummation of our adoption. We are children now, but the fullness of our adoption has not yet been revealed. It one day will be, and the rocks and the trees behave and know better than we do. The rivers cry out, groaning for the revelation of the children of God. They can't wait for that day. Why? Because they understand there will be a renewal of creation. Creation has been subjected to futility. The inference is one day all of creation will be renewed and the, the mark in the sand is the fullness of our adoption. That of all of the gospel blessings, that's where Paul goes to say we need to hope for this. I was driving just yesterday, mindful of this text and of Romans chapter 8, and looking at the glory of the fields and the mountains and the skies. And I said, these mountains are groaning for my adoption. Now, if you say that to someone on the street, they will think you are mad. But it is exactly what Scripture teaches us to say. You confess over and over again, the cosmos is desperately waiting for the day in which God will pronounce before all of creation and the heavenly host, my son, my daughter, the consummation of your adoption guides and ought to lead your every waking thought. And when this governs your understanding of your presently life, it will not be hard to pray your kingdom come. When your heart embraces the reality of your future adoption, the consummation of that doctrine, when your heart embraces it and learns to live by it, it will not be hard to prioritize in your prayers and your thoughts and your whole life, your kingdom come. That is the second prayer that Jesus teaches us. And the third is that your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, we have to note God's will will be done. This is not a prayer that somehow empowers God to do what he would otherwise be incapable of doing. It's not the idea. Your will be done. It is instruction for the disciple, which is to say we must not resist God's will. We don't push back against his will. We come to terms with the fact that we really have very little control over our lives. You can control how you respond to your circumstances. Very seldom can you choose your circumstances. God decrees your lot. 
And your responsibility is to react to that lot in a way that honors him. Your will be done. The disciple is to be one who does not resist God's will. Either his revealed will, as we refer to it, that is Scripture. The disciple is not to be one who seeks to get around the commands of Scripture, bend the commands of Scripture, do something other than obey them. The disciple is to be one who doesn't resist but gets under God's revealed will. Additionally, the disciple is to be one who doesn't resist God's sovereign will, meaning the will of the Father in heaven that is not given in his word, but is made apparent through the progression of history. That is God's will. And we are not to be those who are characterized by a perpetual pushing back of God's ordained lot for our lives. Notice the qualifying phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The heavenly hosts don't resist God's will. The angels continually submit perfectly to God's will. One day we will be revealed in all of our fullness as the sons of God. That day we will not resist his will. Today we're to behave as one who has that hope. Today we're to behave as one of the heavenly hosts, not resisting his will. It is a request that speaks of our contentment. The obstacle to us praying this, to us prioritizing this in our prayers and our thoughts and our lives is that we believe we know best. To put it another way, the obstacle to our prioritizing this is that we believe that we know better than God. Or, to put it another way, the obstacle to us praying this is that we have not come to terms fully with the fact that God is our Father. He loves you. He loves you as a child. God loves you this day just as much as he loves Jesus Christ. He loves you as much as he loves Christ. He's not against you. He's more invested in your flourishing than you are. He wants your good more than you do. If you ask from him bread, he will not give you a serpent. If he ordains trials for your life, it is for your good. You have a father in heaven. And you can ask for his will to be accomplished in your life. Again, Jesus is our example, Matthew 26 Take this cup from me. Jesus saw the wrath of God and understood it more fully than we do. 
And he saw that it was appointed for him. And so in the fullness of his humanity, he said, take this cup from me. But his prayer didn't end there. Yet not your will, not my will, but yours be done. And how did he begin that prayer? Father, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, yet yours be done. It is when you understand that this God is your loving heavenly Father that you are able to submit to him fully and pray with an utmost urgency to live your life at the forefront of your mind. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord's Prayer teaches us, above all things, to relate to God as our Father, to pray to Him as His children, not only to pray, but how to think and live, and as we live as children of God, He will be magnified in our lives. Let's pray now to close. Our Father, we give you thanks for our time together today in your word. We thank you for the instruction that Jesus gave to us concerning prayer priorities by which we are to structure our communion with you, certainly. Priorities for our thoughts, priorities for our lives. Over all of these priorities is the truth that you are our Father. Teach us to believe upon it. Order our thoughts that we would know we are children of God. May it govern all who we are, all that we do and say and think. Lead us ever with the glorious truth that through Christ we are children of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.